See if you can surround yourself with people that you can learn from. See if you can surround yourself with good people. See if you can surround yourself with people that you like being with, that you want to be with. That's not to say you can't learn from others that you don't like, and absolutely you can. But to have a better life, learn from people who are where you want to be. Welcome to the Thriving in Complexity podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne Libertilia, and I'd love for you to join me as I peek behind the scenes of complex situations and workplaces and interview leaders and experts who will challenge your thinking, inform and inspire your leadership so you and your team can thrive in the volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world we live in. On today's podcast episode, I'm speaking with Graham Tom. Graham has served as a fire officer for more than 40 years. He has been burnt, had ceilings fall down around him, fallen into gullies and dropped through burnt out floors. He has been spat at, shot at, abused, accused of corruption, praised and thanked, but not all at the same time. He has led statewide and interstate fire and rescue deployments and overseen responses to significant fire tragedies. Always an operational fire officer, he was one of Queensland Fire and Emergency Services' longest-serving senior officers. He also filled a variety of roles, including Commissioner Community Safety and Risk Management, Assistant Commissioner Northern Region, Brisbane City Fire Commander, Executive Manager State Fire Safety Department, and Director of Operational Performance Improvement. In 2007, he was awarded the highest level of recognition granted to a fire officer and received the Australian Fire Service Medal. In Australia's bicentennial year, he was awarded the Australian Centenary Medal for his contribution to the Australian community, and he has also been presented with the Australian Fire Protection Medal. That's only a few of the very many awards and commendations he has received. However, the one closest to his heart came in an email from one of his sector commanders the day after they had fought one of Brisbane's biggest bushfires. It simply said, There was general agreement among the troops at the end of our debriefing following that fire that they would follow you anywhere. He is now an international speaker, an MC, a media commentator, and mentors high-profile people in the fire industry and in other organisations. And since 2020, is also the founder and executive director of the International Emergency Services Speakers Agency. He remains passionate about fire safety, the fire services and disaster and emergency management at the local, state, national and international level, and is a strong advocate for how knowledge, experience and wisdom gained both by himself and his associates in this field can be used to help individuals and organisational teams to improve their performance and results. I hope you enjoy today's episode as much as I enjoyed speaking with Graham. Welcome, Graham. It's so lovely to have you here on the Thriving in Complexity podcast. I wonder if you'd like to share with everybody something about yourself that most people wouldn't know. Is this like a, a secret, Suzanne? Is it? Is this? It is. So, it, it is. is. It's is an it? opportunity okay. to share secrets about yourself, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I don't know about a secret as such, but um, probably most people, Suzanne, would not know that I was actually in vaudeville for a number of years. Um, My daughter actually started working in a show called Maureen's Musical Melodies, which was a vaudeville show. And uh, I used to take her there. And then um, as time went on, Maureen said, would you mind just standing on the stage to fill in a gap in the back line there? And lo and behold, uh, I ended up being in the vaudeville show for a number of years and loved it. It was just fabulous, yeah. Wow, that's so interesting because mm. my grandparents used to have a boarding house in Spring Hill when my mum was a little girl, and they used to um, – all their guests were all the vaudeville actors 
from okay. the yeah, wow. from yeah. the 40s and the 50s, yeah. Yeah, I was a little bit later than that. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I'm, that. I'm assuming you would be. <laughs> <laughs> so, Graham, when did you first become passionate about becoming a firefighter? That's, that's a really good question. Uh, I, I suppose about a 10-year-old kid, I, I remember watching the fire brigade turn up to a, a car fire and being really kind of in awe of these firefighters putting the fire out. And then a number of years later, I was I actually, one of my girlfriends back then, her father was the chief of the fire brigade in the local town. So that gave me a bit more of an interest. And then coming over the Story Bridge one day, I, I looked into the Kent Place fire station and seen all these firefighters doing these fabulous things and having such a wonderful time that I went down and asked to join. Not that I was passionate about being a firefighter. Yeah. But once you join the fire service and you start to – because I joined because I, I wanted to do something fun and exciting and, and adventurous and all of those things. But once you join, you very quickly start to realise that it's it's not only about you – it's about helping a lot of people in the community. And the first house fire you go to and you see the tragedy, you get the excitement, you get the buzz, but you you see the tragedy of it and you see how you can help mm. the people. And that's when the passion starts to develop. Or if you're a road accident and you're helping people, that's when the passion yeah. comes on board. And then combined with the fact that you're working with other great people doing exactly the same thing, that's when the passion sort of embeds itself into your brain, you know. Yeah, and that passion would make it a lot easier to get through some of those tough times that you mentioned because I imagine you saw some fairly confronting things as a firefighter, so having that sense of purpose must have been very important to you. Yes, it is. It it, it allows you to sort of um, get on with the job and get through to the next the next one, I suppose, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Graham, what's one thing about being a firefighter that you think everybody should learn at some point in their life? Hmm. Something that being a firefighter taught you that you think is really valuable for anyone to really understand? Yeah, um, I, I think one of the key things is that you need to be able to very quickly analyse a situation, circumstances that you're in, and prioritise them and then apply the weight of um, what's needed to that priority to, to get that part done. Mm-hmm. Um, and more often, than, because firefighters operate in an emergency environment, yep. we have to learn to do that. We have to learn to say what's really important here and get on with it. And the rest, although it's still important, it's of lesser importance than that key thing that needs to get done, and you need to get on and do that. Yeah. And so everybody needs to learn to, to do the really important things in life, and we all procrastinate when it's not an emergency, but if you can prioritise and get over the procrastination by yeah. prioritising, that's a key issue for life, I think. So I know with all of your years of training, Graham, that would have been something that you've developed. But I wonder if you can think back about what were some of the things that you did that helped you learn how to do that? Hmm. That's a good question. You've got some great questions here, Suzanne. You've got some great questions. Uh, I think the first thing to say is that an organisation, whether it's your own business or whether it's uh, an organisation that you belong to, and certainly the fire and emergency services does this, I think, really well. And that is that it will give you policies, it will give you procedures, it will give you training, it will give you tools and techniques to do the things that you need to do to be able to prioritise and take that massive action, that, that hard, solid, rapid action to get things done, backed up by all of that stuff that I just talked about. Um, the tools, the techniques, etc., the training, the policies. For all of us about uh, our lives, when we are trying to do something that we believe is important and that others may believe is important, but at least we believe is important, all of that's great, all of that's wonderful, and organisations can do that for you, but ultimately it then comes down to you to take all of that and to apply it in your life and to move forward. Otherwise, it's just good stuff sitting there on the shelf, sitting there on the sideline um, that you can use at any time, but you need to use it. You need, you're, the one, you're the only one in this world that can pick all of that up and put it into practice. 
So I know, Graham, when you speak, because I know that you speak to a lot of different audiences, you speak about wisdom. And so there's all of those policies and procedures and training, but there's some magic source isn't there in between in terms of picking up all of that material and that training and actually putting it in into practice. So mm. is there anything in terms of translate how you translate that into the wisdom on the job that you think you could share with people in terms of some of the things that you might have done that have helped you to develop that wisdom over time. Mm. That that, that um, old saying that uh, anybody that's moving forward only does that with a vision, and the vision is only created by standing on the shoulders of giants that have gone before you. Mm-hmm. That's that's the foundation of wisdom. It's not wisdom, but it's the foundation of wisdom. The second foundation of wisdom is what I talk about in some presentations, and that's the acronym of FIRE, the, the FIRE acronym being fuel, the ignition, the respiration or the oxygen needed for FIRE, and the enablers in FIRE, which is the, the things that you need to do in your life to correct what you've done in your life. Mm-hmm. So you need accountability, that's being able to account for what you decide to do in your life with all those policies and procedures and things behind you. Um, you need responsibility, which is the ability to respond to what you've decided to be accountable for. And then a really key one for wisdom is you then need to be culpable. You need to be able to say, the error on this occasion for this issue is mine and mine alone, if that is the case, mm-hmm. and accept the culpability, accept the responsibility, um, the accountability back to yourself. Don't share it around. If it's a shared issue, by all means, share it around. But if it's you, you need to take the responsibility. And then you yeah. need to take that corrective action. So the, the first part is that uh, standing on the shoulders of giants. The second part is that using the acronym of FIRE for accountability, responsibility, etc. Mm. And the wisdom comes about when you have data and knowledge plus experience. Now, the experience can be yours and others, or it can be just yours, and insight from the experience. From all of that, from that combination And the insight that you then get, which allows you to see into the future so that you can deal better with the present. And so you combine all of that together and you start to get wisdom. Yeah. And that's where it comes from. It's not – wisdom is not philosophical. Wisdom is practical. So, Graham, it sounds like engaging in reflective practice once something, once you've been through an experience, actually looking back and thinking about what went well, what didn't, what could I do better next time is a very important part of developing that wisdom over time. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. And for okay. most organisations and, and certainly um, fire and emergency services fall into this category, although they do that uh, reflective process well, what tends to happen is this certainly within fire and emergency service because we deal with emergencies, is that we will do that reflective process. We will do that debrief. We will analyze it to death and come up with a whole range of recommendations. And let's say we have 20 recommendations. We only get around to putting three of them or seven of them into practice yeah. before the next emergency comes and we're doing the same debrief over the, almost the same issues and coming up with some of the same recommendations and we might implement another two or three Mm. instead of figuring out how to implement all of the wise stuff that has come out of that reflective process and putting it into place. And that's most often what organisations do. They do it incrementally, and then there will be a change of staff, a change of policies and procedures, and the wisdom falls by the wayside and is lost. And or the people who have the insight and have the wisdom up here depart. Yeah. Either through natural attrition, through retirement, or resignations, or nobody's listening to them, etc. So you lose organisational wisdom by not implementing it properly and quickly. Mm. And I suppose that goes back to what you were saying earlier about making sure that you're always focusing on what are the priorities, what's most important yes. here, what needs to be done now, what needs to be done next, and yes. always keeping that continual focus. 
And I, th I think um, you and I may have talked about it. I'm not sure, but Stephen Covey's um, the four quadrants. You know what's yeah. what's urgent and important compared to important but not urgent. Um, yes. And people will focus on the, the the bottom left hand quadrant or whichever quadrant it is that's you know might be important. Yeah. Um, but it's not urgent, or they'll do something that's interesting. Yeah. And non-urgent. Yes. As one of the yes. other quadrants, you know. And yes. we all have a tendency to want to do the things that are interesting rather than important, I think. Yes. And, and I know when you're under pressure situations, there's always the focus on what is the next most urgent thing. The but triage, I know yeah. you previously were in command of all of the fire services in the greater Brisbane area. And so you would have had a very complex situation amongst you at times where you had, I think I've seen before, you've had over 50 calls out a day that you were managing, but there would have been a range of things that you always had to keep your eye on into the future because if you didn't, things would have fallen apart in the future. Yes, and, and that comes down again to teamwork. There's nothing worthwhile that gets done that isn't done through uh, some kind of teamwork, you know, unless you're a hermit living all your life up in the rocks, um, you know, up on Mount Tambourine or something or other, um, you might achieve the best rock pile in the world. <laughs> <laughs> but anything outside of that generally is done by a team of people and it's done, yeah. again, by building on the wisdom. And so in the, in the um, complexity of the environments that you operate in sometimes, and I don't think any of us can operate in that complex, intense environment all of the time. You burn out your brain, just simply gets no, overload, information, data overload, and energy overload. Yeah. But in that confined period of time when you are dealing with hugely complex issues in a confined period of time, you then need to be able to delegate and delegate well which yes. is an art in itself, um, and make sure you've surrounded yourself, hopefully, with people that you can delegate well to and who will do the job well. Yeah. And recognizing that they may not do it, may not do it as well as you think you would, but that's not the point. You need to get the whole job done, not just, um, you know, everything done as well as you could do it. You need to get the job done. Um, and that might be a large, uh, complex fire or it might be a range of fires coming in at the same time or a range of different it's not always fires that are occurring at the same time there might be floods and fires going on there might be yeah. um, rescues going on there might be road accidents going on a whole range of different issues that you're dealing with but you divide up labor and you manage great incidents and great uh, opportunities by dividing up labor, labor and sharing the opportunities with others and I think that's one of the challenges, isn't it, Graham? Realizing when you get to that very senior type of position that you can't be the hero in every situation, that you actually have to work as that coach on the sidelines in many cases, thinking about who are my best players for different situations. I just, is that analogy sort of resonate with you in terms of the work that you've done? Yes, except for the first part. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I could be wrong about this. I'll only speak from my my perspective on this. When you said you can't always be the hero, um, I think when you first join an emergency service organisation, there is a desire to be a hero. Yeah. Um, you would like to be the person who rescues, um, you know, the, the, the child or the puppy or the damsel in distress, etc., as time goes on, you recognize that you don't need to be the hero. So it's not that you want to be the hero. It's that you don't need to be the hero and you get just as much enjoyment as somebody else doing, doing the heroic stuff because if that heroic stuff is getting the job done. Yeah. You know, I mean, you don't want firefighters uh, rushing into a burning building just because they think they want to be a hero. They need to be going into the building with consideration and, and risk management to achieve yeah. an outcome. And that in itself may be heroic, but they're not going in there to, to be heroes. So yeah. um, just giving that a diff slightly different context, Suzanne. Yes. Uh, it's, it's, um, you do need to let others do the more heroic stuff yeah. to get the job done. Yeah. I mean, it brings up that saying from Marshall Goldsmith that what got you here won't get you there in some ways, that the reason why you often get into something 
and the reason why you get promoted and, and you're good at something, it comes to a point in your career where you do need to perhaps shift and think about how do I need to be different to be successful in this role? Because it's not the same as when I, for example, joined up to be a hero. Yes, and, and I suppose there's a couple of things there. The first one is the Peter Principle. Um, you've always got to be doing that self-reflective thing again, making sure that you aren't in a position that you've been put into simply because you're not going to be competent in, in a higher position. Yeah. You know, so whatever position you're in, you've got to make sure that you are competent, particularly in the emergency services, and that um, you can still be stretched into the next position so that you're not stuck on that next position. For for me in any organisation, and in particular in the emergency services, to to only have people in positions of authority and power through the hierarchy um, who are stuck on those positions because they've of the Peter principle that they're all incompetent um, and can't go any further, and so that's where they're that's a bad organisation. Yeah, you you want people that can be stretched. They may be comfortable where they are for a point in time, but they yeah. can be stretched and they can stretch themselves to go into the next position. And that's why in particular in the emergency services, and it comes out of the old military thinking to a large extent where on the battlefield, if you lose um, you know, the, the captain, somebody else has to be able to yeah. take command and be the captain. And so in the emergency services, you're, you're always stretching people up They've got to be able to do, obviously, the job underneath them, but they've also got to be able to do their own job and be able to take command at a slightly higher level. And that gives you a great um, capacity for an organisation and the units within an organisation to thrive in times of complexity because yeah. um, they're not stuck um, with that level of incompetence issue, yeah. the Peter Principle kind of issue going on. And it's interesting to note, Suzanne, that um, one of the major differences in, say, the Israeli army compared to some of the other Arab League armies um, is their hierarchy structure, the empowerment down into um, where the leadership level needs to be rather than taking command and orders from further up in the, in the chain of command. Um, and the, the Roman legions used the same principle with the centurions. Um, give people the power they need here, but make sure they can also move up and down the, the rag yeah. structure a little bit. Yeah. Okay. You mentioned thriving in complexity, Graham. I wonder, I'm very curious around what does thriving in complexity mean to you? Uh, I think thriving in complexity means being able to go home at the end of the event whether it's a, a one-day or 10-minute or yeah. a one-week event. And this happens to all organisations because all organisations have complex issues that they deal with which are compacted down into shorter timeframes or longer timeframes. But it's being able to go home at the end of the event knowing that you've done the best job for you and for the organisation that you work with, whatever that organisation might be, mm -hmm. and that you have learned something that you can apply the next time and you're not burnt out at the end of that period of time. If you're burnt out, you're not thriving. Yep. I've seen this time and time and time again where people don't thrive, they burn out. Yeah, um, And that's never good. Uh, with burnout... Uh, comes a whole range of uh, PTSD kinds of issues with the burnout, yeah. short or long period. So thriving is making sure that you have personally uh, processes of management, self-management in place and yeah. organisational management to ensure that the organisation and the individuals in it thrive through those periods of complexity that they will get. And gee whiz, uh, uh, one only has to think of, you know, the, the recent bushfires, the recent floods, the recent COVID stuff, very complex situations that arose and the organisations that are thriving are those ones that are flexible enough and have got policies and procedures in place and have good people yes. in place that are thriving. You know, and oftentimes it's a self-weeding garden. The, the ones that uh, um, don't want to be in those organisations will leave anyway. They'll go anyway yeah. during times of complexity. Yeah. So 
Graham, obviously you've got a wealth of experience in this space and I'm just curious, I'm sure you've been faced with a complex situation. Like many people, you look back and you wonder whether you could have handled that actually differently or wish that you you could have. I wonder, is there a situation like that that you'd be comfortable to share with people and talk about why you feel that way and what you might do differently if you were ever faced with that situation again in the future? As a leader, the people that you're leading have expectations of you as their leader. You have expectations of yourself. And as a leader, you're you're not leading in isolation with you and the team of people under you. You're always um, dealing with externalities that impact upon your leadership. So as you're asking that question, Suzanne, one of the incidents that occurred, um, I was in charge of taking a, a convoy of uh, firefighters, volunteer auxiliary or not auxiliary, volunteers and permanents, and the support people um, down to New South Wales to help them fight their fires in New South Wales. And I was the um, overall incident commander for our, fire, our Queensland Fire Service mm-hmm. contingent operating in their space in New South Wales with the Rural Fire Service down there and the Permanent Fire Service in New South Wales. And so uh, they had given us work to do, but working alongside them. And it it was hugely complex. Um, The fires were um, large, complex fires. The interaction between the agencies was significantly complex, given that we, when you arrive with a task force, you are immediately on the front line um, mm-hmm. in some circumstances, and this was one such. An incident occurred during the night shift where our communications between New South Wales and Queensland were not aligned. We were using our own comms systems, our own comms processes, policies, etc., and so were New South Wales. Uh, now, I had a significant number of men and women out in the field fighting that fire, and unbeknownst to me as the incident commander, the New South Wales had discovered a, a significant emergency and had put out what's called a code red, um, which is it's the highest level of uh, communications override that you can get. Everybody shut up and listen to what's going on with this code red issue. And, and it impacted upon the Queensland Fire Service, my team of people, but we did not know that that code red was going on simply because we were operating on two different comm systems. Very similar, in fact, Suzanne, to, to what occurred in 9-11, and 9-11 was a much uh, greater tragic scale. Mm. Um, but the, the, the comms between organisations is of such critical nature when you're interfacing with each other. On this occasion, it wasn't. So it wasn't until some time later that I had found out that this code red had been initiated by this other organisation. My my greatest learning out of that was, A, make sure you do that kind of pre-planning, but also, B, as the leader, you also need to be as forceful as you can possibly be without too much hyperbole, uh, hyperbole with the other organisation in making very sure that they know what a critical situation you had been in with your team because Mm. of that lack of communication that had occurred and making sure as the leader you were reinforcing that that really strongly. I think I could have done that better both post and and, uh, during the incident, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so what's something that you have learned when you were faced with the unexpected through your experience in fire and emergency services. So you've given us one example. I'm sure there's been some other things that you've also learnt in terms of being faced with those very unexpected situations. Um, one of the incidents on a much smaller scale, I suppose, but equally as relevant, as a young officer, in fact, it was my very first high-rise fire, I lost one of my firefighters. We had mm-hmm. gone up. It was about three o'clock in the morning, uh, lots of false alarms the day before in that particular building. Um, the caretaker had met us on the ground floor, three o'clock in the morning, taken us up to the 10th floor. He was in the lift with us. Mm. Um, we got onto the 10th floor. I shouldn't have gone to the 10th floor, and there's a lesson in that as well. 
um, always step back from emergency and try and assess it before you enter it. Um, don't just step into the emergency. Um, but when the lift doors opened, um, thick black smoke started pouring into, billowing into that lift, um, which is quite shocking and confusing when it starts to happen when mm. you're not expecting it. And um, the lift doors closed, taking us back down to the ground floor. But what had happened was the youngest of the firefighters had stepped out of the lift. The lift doors then closed, taking us down, leaving him up there. Um, and that was probably the most uh, confronting time for me in the fire service as a brand new officer, mm -hmm. first ever high-rise fire and losing uh, a firefighter, youngest firefighter on the 10th floor uh, in all that smoke and heat. Going down in the lift on that particular night, I mean, literally all I wanted to do was to cry and go home. I'd, I'd had enough. Uh, I'd, I'd lost a firefighter on my first high-rise fire. It was, you know, what kind of leader are you? What kind of person, you know, so much for you being a bloody leader and a hero, you know. Um, mm. But be that as it may, and, and this is the situation that we all face to some extent, to some degree in life, be that as it may, I still had others in my responsibility, including that caretaker in the lift coughing his lungs out, um, and my crew that were with me. You can't just go home. You might feel like going home. You f might feel like going sitting in the gutter and crying, um, but you're not. You've got a, a job to do. You've got work to do, so you need to get on with it and mm -hmm. do it. And irrespective of what they, the rest of the crew, thought of you at that time, and, you know, uh, some of them didn't think much of you at that time. They didn't yeah. think much of me at that time. I'd lost the young firefighter. You've still got to get on with the job. You've still got to do the job that you're there to do. And part of that job is looking after the rest of those firefighters and then putting into place something to go and find the one that you'd lost. Um, so you've, you've, in life, you've got to get on with the job, certainly in an emergency situations, certainly in complex situations. You've got to step back from it before you step into it. But once you're into it, you've got a job to do. You've, you've got to see the job through. Yeah. Um, but factoring in all those things that we talked about, how to thrive in a complex situation, you need to factor all those things in as well. And that's a learning process, both by the individual and the organisation. Yeah. Mm. And, Graham, I think you bring up a really common challenge for leaders when they're faced with very confronting situations you know, you really have a choice to make at that moment, don't you? It's about do you actually focus on how other people see you or do you focus on the job at hand and the outcome that you're trying to achieve and you know, how you choose to respond in that moment can lead to very different outcomes. If you focus too much on what other people think of you, that can paralyze you, cause you to go down the wrong path, where if you focus on what's the outcome we're trying to achieve, it's not about you, it's actually the bigger picture. Um, things can play out so very differently. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah and I yeah. think you've probably faced many complex situations yourself with them. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Nothing quite as dramatic as that. Um, but I think in the moment, you know, we all think what's happening to us is the worst. <laughs> and it, it, I used to work with a doctor who would often um, share with me stories, um, de-identified of course, but to help me put what was going on around us into perspective. But in that moment, you know, that type of approach is not really appropriate when you're faced with the situation that you've just described. Mm -hmm. And and if I can just add one other thing, Suzanne, I, I love the poem by Rudyard Kipling called If. It's one of my all-time favourites. And there's a, a terrific line in uh, that poem that says, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. And, and that's so critical, that's so important that even if you make mistakes in life, that's not who you are. You are not your mistakes. Yeah. And neither are you your successes. Yeah. You know, you, you've, you're a human being with potential and capacity and 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 you know the ability to move on in life. You're not bound by yeah. what you've just done. That's that's the um, the graduate halls of the past. You know. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I can really relate to that, Graham. I know when different things happen in your life, often unexpected things, you have a choice to make in that moment. Is that am I going to let what's just happened define me, or am I going to choose you know how 
how I want to be and am I going to define who I am myself through my actions from this point forward? Mm, yeah. Mm. yeah. So, Graham, what is it that drives you to share your experiences with other people? Because I know that you speak um, to a range of different organisations. Why do you think that's so important that people hear about some of these experiences that you've had? One of my great uh, bugbears, I suppose, Suzanne, is is within our own organisation, Foreign Emergency Services, we're certainly better at it now than we ever have been and and getting better all the time. But it it is that issue about it's it's like a, a waste of wisdom, and, and I'm not talking about my wisdom, although I hope I've had some developed over the years, but it's the waste of wisdom that goes on in every organisation. Yeah. And it becomes this um, repeat of what doesn't need to be repeated, which is so wasteful. And if if we continue to waste resources, we're wasting opportunities and we're wasting opportunities to make the world that we live in better. And so... Yeah. For me, I was always trying to encourage the firefighters, what lessons did we learn out of this and what can we share amongst each other so that we can so that we can stop somebody getting injured, so that we can stop somebody um, not going home at night time after their shift um, and so that we can make the what we do better, yes, which helps externally. So it's kind of external to the organisation that you're working on. It's internal in your own organisation and it's, personal and so um, the last part the personal part if you're not you know somebody said a long time ago often maybe if you're not enjoying what you're doing don't do it you know there might be circumstances that might keep you around for a little while but if you're if you're going to stay in an organization for one year five years ten years and sit there and whinge and complain the whole time and say you hate it that's your fault, in my opinion. There will yeah. always be extenuating circumstances, but mostly that's your fault. Um, and so either learn to love what you're doing or go on and do something else that you do love doing. Go to another organisation, start your own business, mm-hmm. or work here and do the best job you can and go and start a charity or something and do something that you love to do if that's the case. But don't sit here and whinge about it. So the third part is loving what you do and enjoying what you do. And if you're improving what you're doing for others in the organization that again is self-reflective it comes back to you and it makes your life better and so wisdom is often about making your life better and if it makes your life better and makes others better and should make others better that's the third part your life so your life the organizational life and outside of your organization Yeah. yeah I'm not and, sure whether that answered the question. But anyway. <laughs> well, uh, you can continue on if you like because I know it's not just you who speaks. You have a speaker's bureau and so you have a range of other people that you can also share with organisations who are interested in tapping into that wisdom that you speak about. So I just wonder if you want to tell us a little bit more about some of the other speakers and mm. the types of things that they can share with people yeah thank you yeah absolutely um so the, the bureau is the uh, international emergency services speakers bureau uh, and it, it has as its speakers those that have come out of the complex world of emergency services so that's fire police ambulance and state emergency services air sea rescue lifesavers but it also includes uh, military, so all of the Army, Navy, Air Force and, and other aspects of the military, and also the medical side, doctors and nurses and paramedics in different countries around the world. And so all of those people have got, generally speaking, emergency experience. Now, there are others in the Bureau as well, Suzanne, that might be, for example, in Queensland, I'll just use Queensland as, Queensland as an example, but it applies almost throughout the world uh, universally. And that is that, for example, a mayor in a town, let's say Brisbane, um, they are the head, when an emergency occurs, they're the head of a committee, of a group, that has to deal with that emergency within their city or their town, etc. So they have to deal with complexity 
and emergency over extended periods of time. Um, you know, the 2011 floods, um, I was both the Brisbane City Fire Commander, and plus I was sitting on the committees being chaired by the, the then Mayor of mm-hmm. Brisbane. And I can tell you that those mayors, they have to know their stuff, or they should know their stuff, to deal with the emergencies that apply in their patch in their time and they're sitting there as the mm-hmm. mayor. And so some of the speakers are also people like past a mayor of Brisbane. But there's people from military. There's a, there's a guy um, that um, has written a book, one of the speakers. Um, the book's called How to Amputate Your Leg in um, a War Zone. Um, you know, fairly unique experiences that some of these speakers have got. There's a retired uh, naval commodore who is the 2IC, the second in command in Afghanistan and in Iraq through the naval mm. um, side of things. Um, there's the retired commissioner of the Queensland Fire and Emergency Services, Lee Johnson, 12 years as the commissioner of one of the largest fire and emergency organisations in the world. Most, uh, uh, like even in America, they're small town fire brigades. Queensland, we have one whole state um, with, you know, thousands and thousands of volunteers, thousands and thousands of permanents and auxiliaries. So very large, complex organisations and the speakers in the Bureau have got the emergency frontline thinking that they can apply to management issues in any organisation because they also apply them as leaders and managers in their own organisation. An assistant commissioner from the New South Wales Fire Brigade, Alan Clark, was the um, officer in charge, the assistant commissioner in charge of the Lint, Lint Cafe um, terrorist attack. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that what that did to him personally, so most of these speakers can also talk about PTSD, yes. um, managing stress. They can manage, uh, they can talk about not only leadership and management, but leadership and management in critical circumstances and in the sort of the normal running of an organisation as well. So they've got vast experience huge speaking skills and they can deliver you know really powerful messages to their audience yeah. um, and get the message across for the people in that audience that organization by using analogies from where they've come from in the fire and emergency services uh, background yes. so brilliant speakers yeah well i wonder if we sort of take a little bit of a lighter note and i wonder if you want to give us some insights into some of the myths that might exist about firefighters other than the fact that they're all calendar pinups. Well, at least they are in Queensland. (laughs) There seems to be that bit of a view. But what are some of the things about being a firefighter that you think people probably misunderstand? Hmm. Well, uh, probably all firefighters would like to be uh, in the pinups and the calendar (laughs) pinups. Unfortunately, we can't all be there, do that. Although they did have um, an over 50s firefighter calendar for a while. Yeah. Didn't work real well at all, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we do have both a male and a female firefighter's calendar, which is very good. Uh, but other than everybody wanting to be in, in the firefighter's calendar or not, uh, look, I suppose that the common myths are things like firefighters just sit around playing cards all day until the bells go. Mm-hmm. Absolutely not true. Um, firefighters, some firefighters do play cards. Others play tiddlywinks. And, you know, <laughs> there's a, a range of things they do in their downtime. The downtime is not a lot. Yeah, people have got that impression that there's a lot, lot of um, sitting around playing cards. It's, that's absolutely not true. There's a lot of training that goes on. Uh, there's always debriefing stuff of different fires. There's going out and visiting their uh, patch that they work in and, and learning about their patch. Firefighters are the, uh, a, a, a jack of all trades, and so mm-hmm. they're trying to be across a vast array of uh, issues and information to make sure they can apply what's best to be applied at any particular time. If any of my firefighters were, when I was um, the fire commander, were found to be turning the lights and sirens on to go and get their lunch, they would have got their rear ends kicked really hard. Yeah. But there's still people out in the community that think that we put the lights and sirens on <laughs> so we can get in front of the queue to get the, the hot pies fast and first or something. That's not true. The only time you will hear those lights and sirens is when there's a potential emergency or an actual emergency. Yep. Uh, that's yep. the only time that you'll hear them. And I suppose um, the other side is that the, the fire service, that's both volunteer and permanence, 
has people in the organization that come from a wide range of of occupations and professions outside before they become firefighters. We've got people that have been um, studying law, lawyers, um, people that have been a lawyer and come in and wanted to be a firefighter, um, and vice versa. Some firefighters that have now become lawyers. Um, we've got people in the medical field. We've got people in engineers, pilots that are, are firefighters. And so um, f- firefighters have a, a range of skills and academic backgrounds, the same as those in communities. Yeah. And so that's a myth that firefighters <laughs> are all the sort of, uh, you know, uh, one one category of people. We're, we're just human beings that are doing um, what most and ninety nine percent of all firefighters are actually passionate about what they do. They love what they do yeah. for a range of reasons. They just love being firefighters. I deal with a lot of uh, retired firefighters, and uh, all of them would go. Almost all of them, ninety nine point nine percent again, would go back and fight fires again, or go back and be a firefighter again. They just love it that much. Yeah. You know? yeah. 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 I think I like asking that question because it just um, brings up all the assumptions that people can tend to make and the fact that we assume, you know, we hear something so we assume it to be true, but the importance of actually going and questioning that and asking, well, why do I know that to be true? So, yeah. 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 Always so, check your assumptions. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. Yes. Mm, did you know an assumption about phlogiston? Okay. I'm very curious to hear what that is now. Well, phlogiston is the stuff that's uh, inside every um, material body throughout the universe. Every galaxy, every planet, every has phlogiston inside it. And when you light the material, it gives off phlogiston. And when all the phlogiston is given off, the fire goes out. Now, that's totally wrong. It's absolute rubbish. It's not true. But for about 200 years, Suzanne, people thought... That stuff had phlogiston inside it. They assumed that it had phlogiston, and that's what was burning. That was what was going, getting given off. And most of the alchemists and chemists of the time thought that was the case, and a lot of them thought that was the case because other chemists and alchemists thought that was the case who thought that other, and they believed it because other chemists yeah. thought it. Yeah. So about 200 years, people assumed that there was this stuff called phlogiston. It's never existed. It was just a huge <laughs> assumption. Yep. That, nobody, that nobody really checked. And interestingly enough, it was a young woman who thought about it a lot more and was doing some experiments herself, and she thought, I don't think this stuff exists. I don't think it's a real thing. So she wrote a paper about it, and guess what? It's not true. She didn't get any recognition for it at all. A man oh. did, and then she did about 100 years later. But it took a long time for people to go, hey, she was right. Yeah. And she was saying, I think it's oxidization. I think it's this chemical process called oxidization. It's rapid oxidization. People go, no, nah, it's phlogiston, it's phlogiston. Assumptions. Yeah, so assumptions that hold us back from progressing. And the importance of asking that question, how do I actually know that this is true? Yes. What? what yes. Where is the evidence that tells where me? Where is the evidence? Yeah. Yeah. And is there <laughs> counter evidence? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, Graham, if you had a chance to go back and talk to your 25-year-old self, what would you tell yourself um, based on all of your wealth of experience these days? Mm. Why did you pick 25? Well, a lot of people go back to 18-year-old and I think that Mm. 25 is because this is a more professional sort of focused podcast and I think that's probably more an age when you are making some choices, life choices these days. I know I've got my son's about to turn 24 and I suppose I know where he is and and where Mm -hmm. he's still um, deciding who he is and how he wants to be. 18 is very young these days and um, I think you're still evolving as a person right through your 20s and so I think there's an opportunity to come back and take some wisdom from someone else and I think you're a little bit more potentially mature then and able to take it in. It, it truly is. It's, it's, you know, a lot of what we've already talked about, and that is see if you can surround yourself with people that you can learn from 
See if you can surround yourself with good people. See if you can surround yourself with people that you like being with, that you want to be with. That's not to say you can't learn from others that you don't like, and absolutely you can. But to have a better life, surround yourself with people that you like and that you like being with and that you can learn from. Um, and surround yourself with people, not surround, but learn from people who are where you want to be. And and there was a terrible thing in the fire service for many, many years that if anybody was, there was this whole cultural thing that developed, which was mind-bogglingly stupid. Um, but there was a huge culture that anybody that wanted to progress, that wanted to become an officer, so there was this culture in the firefighter ranks that, you know, you were you were a, a sniveller, that you were, a, you know, you're trying to be better than you ought to be. What's wrong with just being a firefighter? There was this for a few years there. It was just this horrible culture of of don't try and be anything other than what you are. Um, thank God that's changed. Um, it took a while to break out of that, but don't let a culture that you might find yourself in dictate your thinking for you. Think outside that culture. And if you want to be something for the right reasons, go for it and go yeah. hell for leather for it, you know. So surround yeah. yourself with good people, learn lots, um, love what you're doing and stretch yourself to see how far you can go. Yeah, that's great advice, Graham. Really lovely advice. Mm. And if I know in our show notes we'll include all of your details, including the details of how to contact you with the Speakers Bureau, but if people would like to connect with you online, how can they go about doing that? The, the first way I, would be through the Speakers Bureau, um, and that's uh, the long name is the International Emergency Services Speakers Bureau, but just iessb.com.au. Um, and that will get you to the website and you can contact me directly through the website. Um, you can send an email to me, which is graeme, G-R-A-E-M-E, at GT Associates, all just one word there, gtassociates.com.au. Um, or on my mobile, quite happy to take a call on my mobile, uh, 0416-167-523. And uh, yeah, any of those three mechanisms will get me fairly quickly. Oh. Graham, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. And Likewise, I know you've got so many more stories and insights and wisdom to share with everybody. So if anyone is interested in having Graham or one of his speakers come and speak to your organization, please reach out to him. I know he'd love to hear from you and um, genuinely lovely person and really <laughs> appreciate you taking the time out, Graham, today to come and speak with me. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure too, Suzanne. Yeah, best of luck. Thank you. Cheers. Okay. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you had something you want to revisit or explore in more detail, you can check out the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode and you like helping others to open their thinking, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. As always, a big thank you to Leon Fitton and the team at the Podcast Concierge. That's all for this episode. I'll see you next time.